Hello and welcome to Dragons and Mice, the podcast about what happens on, around, and behind the tabletop. Today I'm joined, as always, by Greg. Hey there. And we will be talking about RPGs and how the different editions affect the game, how they come about, and many other things like that. Yeah, just kind of riffing. But first, let's talk about some of the games we've been playing. Yeah, so we just played a couple games of Azul, actually, Mm -hmm. which is really exciting. It's a really hype new game. I think you mentioned it was up for the 2018 Spiel des Jahres. Yes, it is. It's got some amazing reviews. It's absolutely gorgeous. You're basically putting together a mosaic tile wall in Iberia. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you think about Alhambra and a lot of sort of the, the mosques from Iberia and those beautiful tiled walls. That's what you're doing. You're putting those together. Um, the tiles are really high quality, and the gameplay is really interesting, so we were excited to to give that a shot. Yeah, and it's a quick game. It's fun. We got to play two rounds of it, and it was really quick. And it has some very surprising strategic depth. Yeah, and it's, at least in a two-player game in particular, it's very easy to end the game very quickly. Yeah. And I think even that probably stays true in a, a four-player game as well. And so it's sort of a matter of, okay, do I go for this long play in which I try to, like, absolutely get every single aspect of my my wall the way i want it to be or do i just say that person's being more successful at that than i am i'm just gonna end the game yeah exactly Um, so Um, it's there's there's a lot of that sort of macro level strategic consideration for sure and i think that that really adds to the game Mm -hmm. and just like even when you when to take certain tiles and things like that it's like I have to take this right now because like Greg is going to need it. So if I don't take it, he's going to take it and then I won't have it. Yeah. Or Greg literally has no way of taking these reds. And so therefore, unless he wants to take a lot of minus points. So I'm going to leave them and we're going to take the other thing that I want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's aspects of it that I compared while we were playing to uh, fighting over the bonuses from like the temperature track in Terraforming Mars, which is everyone's being really coy about okay how many actions do i have remaining what can i take instead of taking the one thing that's going to set you up to do it and it's, it's almost like who blinks first yep, yep. Uh, type of situation so there's there's definitely elements of that which is is fun yeah and it's simple it's very oh, yeah. easy to learn and it's fun it's one of those games that you can play a few times before your main game for the night and things like that so mm-hmm. I'm glad I picked it up, and I'm looking forward to playing more. Yeah, same. Same here. Besides that, I had a chance to play uh, Path of Light and Shadow Mm -hmm. again, so I am finally getting my own copy to table now. Yeah. I tried Cruelty Mm -hmm. for the first time. You know, I'm I'm a Care Bear by nature. Merciful is my default. I like building things. I like researching things. But I did, I deliberately said to myself, all right, I'm going to go Cruelty Strategy. I'm going to try to see how it works. I mean, it was interesting. It felt very fragile, in the early game because one of the primary ways that you earn cruelty is by culling your deck removing Mm -hmm. cards from your deck which is a powerful mechanic because it it leads to a sort of a tighter deck but it can also leave you precarious there were definitely points in my deck where i had fewer than two hands worth of cards Mm -hmm. which was a problem when you know so many of the promotion effects you can target cards in your hand but you can also target cards in your discard, and that's the better thing to do because yeah. you don't lose the value of the cards currently in your hand. So mm-hmm. there was a, like an entire third of the game where I couldn't do that because I never had any cards in my discard because I had to reshuffle my deck every single time. Yeah. So that was a little frustrating, but it did get quite powerful towards the end. There's some certain buildings uh, and certain cards that can really enable you to take off in some really powerful ways. 
Um, and I didn't end up winning that game, but it was close. It was close. She was pursuing a build strategy. Okay. And so we were kind of playing into each other, but a little bit past each other as well. But I do think the observation that I had before was more or less correct, which, you know, build strategies are really powerful if you're left on your own to do what you want. Mm-hmm. But if you have a threat of someone who's going to come knocking on your door, you kind of have to make concessions to an optimal strategy because you have to defend yourself. So, yeah, um, for sure. It's interesting overall. I enjoyed it. I will probably default to Mercy every time, but I could definitely, based on, you know, especially in a four player game, I could see myself snatching up some cruelty if that space is left open. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. I'm looking forward to trying to play that game again because it was fun. And I'm curious to see how it goes with a more balanced group, I think, in terms of the the different types of player strategies. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've been traveling this past weekend, so I didn't get to play too many things. But I did actually get to go back to an old favorite, the Carcassonne app. Nice, nice. So I've always liked this app. I've used it since, I think, my first trip to Origins, which was all the way back Oh, in uh, 2015 or something like that. When you were a weebab. Yes, so it's been a while. And still, they they actually recently released a new version of the app. Oh, wow. So it looks really nice. It plays very well. And it's still the same old really good game Carcassonne in app form. Mm -hmm. And I get to play it two-player, which is my preferred way of playing it because it gets to be really cutthroat and... um, Beating some of the AIs can be difficult. Some of them are a lot easier than others. But. Sure. So I was actually going to ask, like, is there online matchmaking or yes. is it? Okay. You can play online, you can play hot seat, and you can play single player. Okay. So pretty standard for like multiplayer apps. Yep. I've definitely seen that that configuration before. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And Carcassonne really works very well hot seat because you literally are just t- drawing a tile each round. You don't have any kind of planning or anything like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, and you're only you're only interacting with other players in as much as you're interacting with what they already have on the field. Yep, exactly. So, well, so yeah, that was fun. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it was good time. You took the train. Yes. Yeah. So just kick back, play some Carcassonne. Mm-hmm. Good deal. Exactly. I have been playing one other thing as well. I played Spirit Island. We shared a picture of that on our Instagram. I ramped up the difficulty this time. <laughs> so. Uh, I've been slowly getting my feet wet with playing against adversaries and I have been, you know, sort of steadily increasing the difficulty. And this time I played at level three out of six and it was, it's starting to get tough y'all. Um, <laughs> it, I was playing against England and England is a very building focused opponent. They're the only yeah. opponent in the base game that has an alternate win condition, which is if there's ever a land with seven or more buildings, they win. <laughs> um, so they and they have all so many other bonuses are you know during setup at extra buildings they get extra building phases literally at level six the absolute hardest on any turn where you don't generate a fear card they build and then they build and then they ravage and then they build and then they explore <laughs> like that's the progression oh my uh so i am not looking forward to playing level six england but I did manage all the way up to level three. I played level one, two, three, and I did manage to pull it out. I was playing Ocean's Hungry Grasp and just the sheer destructive power. Even though, you know, inland spaces were logistically difficult, the ability to keep the coasts clear really helped stymie a lot of the advancement that they would otherwise have. And you had an interesting observation about that, that like the bringer of nightmares and the Ocean's Hungry Grasp 
like have a very limited like range and you know that they have a really big weaknesses yeah but that allows you to really think about those as you play and it almost makes it easier to choose certain cards and other things like that to cover those weaknesses whereas mm-hmm. some of the other spirits don't have as defined weaknesses so it's a little bit harder to play to minimizing like the effect of those yeah and it's i've played this game a lot and i'm starting to get good at identifying you know what spirits are good at what but it's also it's so much easier for you when the game just straight up says you cannot do this thing as ocean's hungry grasp you cannot place presence on inland lands as bringer of dreams and nightmares you cannot destroy invaders so by having those avenues completely closed off to you under all circumstances it just makes it so much easier to not even worry about them and pick around those. Whereas if you're playing something like, you know, River Surges in Sunlight or Lightning Strikes Swiftly, they're really good at certain things and really bad at other things, but they can still technically do those things that they're bad at. So yeah. there's such this tension, and especially as someone who's usually sort of playing into the jack-of-all-trades mm-hmm. type of thing, you almost want to, I almost want to, you know, diversify, shore up my weaknesses as opposed to just playing harder into my strengths. And so I think one of the strengths which you accurately captured is that their weaknesses are so obvious Mm -hmm. and it it just makes it that much less of a cognitive dissonance when you're playing them. Makes sense. Yeah, I can totally see that. But I, you know, I've been playing a bunch of solo. I'm excited to play some not solo Mm -hmm. at some point. I have Branch and Claw actually on reserve at labyrinth so gonna get that expansion y'all you'll you'll have a chance to play your preferred spirits none of whom are in the base game yeah and we will report back on how that goes definitely and there you have it that's a look at what we've been playing we here at dragon's demise are no strangers to new additions being that this is Dragon's Demise 2.0 that you are listening to right now. That's true. New and improved. Well, old and improved. Yeah. By now, it's been a little while. But, you know, it's the uh, it's the cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Just like RPGs, podcasts have that kind of cycle, too. <laughs> or at least ours does. So today we're here to talk about some of the RPGs and how the whole new edition cycle and, like, what are some of the reasons behind it? What are some of the benefits, detriments? and drivers just in general behind the new additions yeah exactly and as always you know when we talk about rpgs and specifically the design elements of rpgs you know neither of us have experience in this arena so this is coming strictly from a perspective of a a gm from a player's perspective thinking about you know hey they're moving to a new edition this actually so the impetus for this episode was paizo has announced that they're moving into a second edition of pathfinder yeah and i love pathfinder i think it's one of my favorite systems And so it got me thinking about, well, okay, like what are the things that go into that? And I think they did a really good job actually of laying out in sort of their design documents, some of their FAQs, why they were getting into it. They raised a lot of really interesting points. Specifically, one of the biggest was, you know, Pathfinder's been around for 10 years and simply consolidation. They've introduced a lot of new rules, a lot of new mechanics in the years since the core rulebook came out, and they've never done a reprint a significantly altered reprint of the core rulebook. So taking something like archetypes, mm-hmm. which have become so integral to the game, you know, they add so much flavor, they add so much variety to your character concepts. The word archetype doesn't 
appear anywhere in the core rulebook, or at the very least, not as the mechanical concept. So, you know, kind of just taking a lot of those things and, and being able to condense and say, all right, let's let's take what we've learned, and let's republish with a new, not even a new, but just a, a tweaked version from everything that we've learned. Yeah, so many, many RPGs have had second editions. Pathfinder's coming out, Scion second edition is coming out, you have D&D is on fifth edition, mm-hmm. same as Shadowrun is also on his fifth edition. Call of Cthulhu is on seventh edition, I think. Yeah, so... There are a lot of different RPGs that have done this. And I think one of the main reasons probably is exactly as Paizo is doing right now with Pathfinder is just changing a little bit, like tweaking and consolidating what worked and what didn't work in the previous edition. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, it's a good timeline for that. It's been 10 years since they released the first one. And that's a decent amount of time to learn a lot from an RPG. Oh, absolutely. But that's also not the only reason that a company would want to release another edition. There are a few other ones that we can think of, and I think one of the ones that's near and dear to me is because you want some new hype and you want to like kickstart it or just you know get that mm, name yeah. back out there. And it's actually how I learned about a few different RPGs. Polaris is technically in its second edition, and as is Scion second edition, which is one that I had not hadn't even heard of before mm-hmm. until the Kickstarter started happening. And then, you know, I just saw it and was like, oh, this is really awesome and decided to back it. And now I'm really, really looking forward to this new edition of an RPG that was pretty old by the time that it, it re-released. Yeah, and I think there's there's sort of a broader theme that you can identify, which is just sort of the player base driving new editions, whether yeah. it's you know, players providing feedback about, hey, we think this mechanically could be better. Hey, we think these maybe could be consolidated as with the move to 5th edition D&D mm-hmm. or Pathfinder 2.0, but also thinking about growing a player base, whether you have an actively expanding player base, as I believe was sort of the impetus for moving to advanced Dungeons and Dragons back mm-hmm. in the 80s, or whether you are seeking to expand your player base. I know 4th yeah. edition D&D in particular was... A lot of people saw it as this sort of move to try to grab casual gamers because it was really drastically streamlined and they lost a lot of hardcore people because of it. Mm-hmm. But you really have to respect them for being so definitive, so so aggressive in changing up their playstyle, keeping a lot of the same identities, you know, a lot of the same classes, a lot of the same monsters, a lot of the same brand identity, for lack of a, a better term, but streamlining the mechanics to such a degree that they're virtually unrecognizable yeah but the shift to dnd fourth edition also of course prompted another reason for a shift when it went to fifth edition which is what the fans wanted yeah and just like going back to your almost roots because a lot of fans were very unhappy with fourth edition because Mm -hmm. because of the streamlining and for me, I was definitely one of those. I was not the biggest fan of 4th edition. I thought that the biggest thing for me was the magic items, that they just yeah. didn't. Greg, you said that it was just like a stat stick, pretty much. Yeah. And it's just like, oh yeah, now you get this plus one, now you get this plus two, and like there was no flavor to it at all. Mm-hmm. It felt like I was playing Diablo and just like adding another gem or adding yeah. something else to it's my weapon a- and just like getting a stat boost and not mm-hmm. actually having the chance to do what an RPG 
is meant to do, which is role play. Yeah, it's just a pants simulator. You're just grinding for better and better pants. Exactly, exactly. And so that is one of the things that fueled the move to 5th edition. And it was very much by the fans, almost for the fans kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Because they really, really went and involved the people that love D&D in the playtests, in surveys about, you know, the artwork, about how all this, like, worked together. Mm Mm-hmm. And it really shows in 5th edition because they took, like, the best of all worlds. Yeah, absolutely. I think they did a really respectable job, you know, sort of soliciting feedback uh, from the players and making sure that they felt incorporated their their feedback and their observations. Because when you have, you know, something as complex as an RPG system, even an RPG system that's been around for, goodness, coming on 40 years now, like Dungeons & Dragons, that has a lot of provenance behind it and a lot of playtesting you know, there's always something to be gained by having more minds come mm-hmm. at it and think about things that a design team, no matter how focused, no matter how skilled, just couldn't yeah. because they, they have a certain perspective that they're bringing to it. So Not only um, that, but you're, you're going from uh, a design team that is in the tens of people to a playtesting and or player base of right. like hundreds of thousands of people. They're going to find ways of breaking the rules. Mm-hmm changing the rules and yep. like making something better and being like, why'd you do it this way? If you could do something really simple and do it like this way and, and like have a lot of the fan things and, and all yep. that. And as they play it, like, you know, it evolves like the game itself, since RPGs are so driven by the GMs, by the players, they evolve over time. Mm-hmm. Like, in general, like you'll never have two of the same D and D games. Oh, you'll no. never have two of the same of any RPG game, even if you're running the same exact module, because people will think of some other things and you'll have to react to them. And I think that that's part of it. And it's like you just start learning a lot about that. And RPGs, for the most part, when there's a new idea or something else that has like either come up outside of the design team or in the design team, they'll add a supplement. Mm, yeah, and Throughout the life cycle of an RPG, lots of supplements come out. D&D is no stranger to it. Pathfinder is notorious for it. Mm -hmm. And they add a lot to the game system. But with every coming supplement that comes out, you increase the barrier to entry. Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing if, you know, you're joining an existing group that between everyone has all the supplements or they're like me and is a GM who will literally buy everything on the first day that it comes out. (laughs) But if you're like starting a new group or like, you know, you have a lot of new people and like one GM, it's like, yeah, let's play with just the base game. But like, there's like all this other cool stuff that you would love to read Mm -hmm. into. But starting with all that will overwhelm people. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's as you mentioned sort of a natural cycle you have this expansion and then a contraction as as you release a new edition and you've got you know sort of the trimmed down core rules this is what you need to play the system and then you add some flavor you add some new variety and things and it just grows and grows and grows and supplements and then you contract and you take a lot of what you've learned a lot of what was really popular Mm -hmm. um one of the things that i know it's not just mechanics that get incorporated into the new course it's the monsters mm-hmm. that were super popular, you know, that become like the the hits. And I, as I was doing research for this episode, actually, one of the things that struck me as so amusing was in the movement from Dungeons and Dragons to Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, 
one of the things that they did was buff dragons Mm. because they had gotten a lot of feedback that said dragons feel really puny and when it's half of the name that that's really disappointing so you know it's so funny that that you know adjusting the relative power level of monsters or how you know how imposing they are how in you know integrated they feel is one of the things that gets factored in when you move to a new edition. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, and it also happens with other things like player races. Mm-hmm. Dragonborn was not a main player race yeah. for a very, very long time. I think even 3.5, it was not one of the main player races in, nope. in the player's handbook. And now in 4th edition and 5th edition, it's right there because it was so popular and because people love playing Dragonborn. Well, and the one that gets me about this is Tiefling. Oh, yeah. You know, Tiefling were introduced alongside ASMR, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, sort of the good aligned outsider kin to Tiefling's evil aligned outsider kin. ASMR, I mean, they exist in new D&D, but they're not... A core race, which yeah. is just so amusing to me, because it, you've got this. Well, I this mean, pure have you mirror. played D anD D? I well, okay, all right, yeah, fine. That's. <laughs> I mean, what do players tend to be? They tend to break things. That's <laughs> they they that's like true. fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they um, like to make things explode in demonic fire. <laughs> some players, not all players, not all players, no. but. Um, like it's a trend. <laughs> it is. It is certainly a trend. Uh, but it's it's just so amusing to me that you've got these incorporations that are so reflective of what people like, mm-hmm. what people are, are interested in, what people want to do, what people want to be, which really just highlights what an RPG system is, and that is a way for people to have fun. Yeah. You know, and if if people prefer to have fun by setting things on fire and blowing things up and being devilkin, then. Yeah, there you go. Make your tieflings uh, an integrated part of the race. If they want to be dragons, make them dragonborn. So it's really encouraging to see that sort of responsiveness come into a lot of the, you know, the addition changeovers. And also, it's it's really cool to actually start seeing the, the ability of the new additions to freshen up the formula. Yeah. Because as much as the RPGs can just keep going and you can you can still play AD&D and you know any of these other right, ones yeah. like they're still around like you can still get the books I have a few AD&D second edition books like on my shelf have I ever actually gotten played with them of course not, not really but the freshening up is really nice because you get to add some new stuff you get to add things like even just for the flavor wise so like D&D recently added in Volo's guide the fur books mm-hmm. which I'm sure have been a playable race in the past. Sure. But they've never been so almost front and center. And this just adds like something that's like people are like, oh, wait a minute. Like, this is a cool different race. Or like, you know, I like the flavor of this. Let me play around with it. Mm-hmm. And it just like adds that little bit of a kick to it. It's just like there's that. There's the tabaxi, which are have also been added, which are like the cat people, mm. which it really allows for a bit of a change in what's in the forefront for players yeah well and and speaking of that one of the things that we haven't touched on which is a little bit surprising given how much we both you know love this aspect of things is the lore changes oh yeah you know D in particular and we keep coming back to that as an example but it's it such a good example in a lot of ways you know every single time that there's been a rule change at least in the modern era mm-hmm. it's been accompanied by you know these massive upshifts in the lore i think in at least one of them, I think it might have been 3.5 to 4th edition, Mistra, the goddess of magic, dies. Yeah. Like, in the lore, that happens, and that accounts for why spells and combat and, and abilities work so differently in 4th edition. So the fact that 
they put this thought into the, the fact that they, you know, have these these in context reasons that the mechanical changes that you're seeing have occurred is really fascinating to me. And I know Pathfinder, they're in the middle of their 2.0 playtest. And one of the things that they've been doing as part of it is running this adventure module called Dark Dawn, Dawning Day, something something to that effect. And it's basically this this Armageddon scenario, which is sort of walking you through, okay, what are the changes that are happening on Galarian yeah. as we move from you know what we've known into the unknown? Uh, and so sort of advancing the lore is, I think, a really unique opportunity mm-hmm. that comes along with changing additions. Oh, for sure. And, you know, updating things. D&D at one point went to having all dragons have alignments themselves and mm-hmm. not. like In early editions of D&D, at least 3.5, chromatic dragons are evil. Metallic dragons are good. Right. Fourth edition did away with that. Yeah, it just changes to the way the alignment chart works. Really, yeah. really bold things that just kind of get at the underlying assumptions about what a character is and it's um it's actually really interesting again in in sort of the research that i was doing a lot of the earlier stuff was moved in the opposite direction so Mm -hmm. they had a lot of that moral ambiguity in the early editions and then because of all the negative press that they got with like oh consorting with devils or like whatever the hell that (laughs) the, the moms in the 80s were mad about yeah they did away with that. They they removed explicit references to devils and demons, although they replaced them with Tanari and Batezu, but, you know, whatever. And they, they put a lot more emphasis on heroicism. They, you know, they yep. introduced the paladin class. They they got rid of, like, assassins as mm-hmm. a class, you know. And, and so the kind of responding not just to what players want, but almost to a cultural moment about, you know, the anti-hero has been really popular for, what, 20 years now. Oh, yeah. Um, and sort of moving in that direction of that moral ambiguity. Is this person a good guy? What does a good guy mean? Are all drow evil? Mm-hmm. You know, Drizzt is one of the greatest selling characters of all time. Yep. And, and one of the most overdone character archetypes of all time. Uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, people, people are going to play what they're going to play. Yes. But, you know, just m- being able to explore that space, not just narratively, which was always there as a possibility, but having mechanics that reinforce and even encourage your ability to explore that space, I think is really great for new players. Oh, for sure. Exactly. Because it's all the framing. Yeah. And so with all this, creating a new edition of any RPG is no small task. Oh, goodness, no. It is a monumentous endeavor, especially depending on something. If it's D&D, oh my God, that is a lot. (laughs) Pathfinder, probably even more right now because they have even more supplements than I think D&D almost ever had. Unless you maybe combine 3.0 and 3.5. I mean, why wouldn't you? But Yeah, but there's there's so much there that you have to boil down to just like, this is what our new core is going to be. And also, like, just figure out, like, what mechanics you want to change, what things you want to like, keep, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And some of the other interesting things that uh, that can be changed as well as updated is the actual, like, look and feel of the RPG itself. Where you have your new player handbook can be done in such a way that, mm. you know, you have a lot of improvements in the formatting the layout the like how people can actually go through it and you learn from how they've worked in the past and you change it and so like you know people would always go 
from race to and then class or something like that and and you used to have it the other way you could always switch it back Mm -hmm. and it just it helps you become more intuitive and more user-friendly as you develop the game further yeah and it's it's one of those things that is interesting because you can also tell sometimes when a game is a first edition because there are some parts of it that aren't really as polished that polished is exactly the word i was going to use exactly so it's just like I was looking at a game that was about a zombie apocalypse, but also like, you know, how human capital like goes and moves between like different groups and things like that. And how Hmm. you are like almost a traitor of human capital kind of thing. All right. Very interesting premise, I guess. But when I was looking through the book, you could tell that this is a first edition because the first 200 some odd pages were lore. Oh, wow. Like... It was just pretty much telling you about the world and no mechanics. That's that's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot, and it's that kind of thing where that you like learn that first edition. It's like, yeah, this didn't really work. <laughs> like, it's time for switching it up a bit and mixing everything together. And and of course, there are different schools of thought on this of like you know whether you want to keep lore separate from mechanics or how much you want to present them integrated. Mm-hmm. But in general, they should have at least some integration, else the lore is just a skin on top of the RPG system. Yeah. And it just isn't as interesting. Along with that, though, you can also, like, change some of your artwork. And, like, I know that based on some of the stuff that you were telling me, Pathfinder had all of their artwork, like, hanging on their walls for the first edition of, like, Pathfinder's core rulebook. Mm-hmm. And so their art budget was very, very small. I am sure that that is not the case for this new edition. They yeah. probably have a whole new like set of artwork that is tailored to this RPG and just really probably very, very integrated into what they actually want to show. You know, I think it's something that attracts less attention than, say, mechanical changes. But, you know, updates to artwork and updates to the aesthetic of a system can really make a big difference. Uh, World mm-hmm. of Darkness is uh you know a pretty broad setting that went through a very radical shift they you know there's there is a classic world of darkness and a new world of darkness and they're considered by many players to be different settings yeah you know it's it's a similar system but there's a lot of difference and when you think about sort of the environment that you find yourself in and how to interact with it and what types of things what types of adventures and stories it lends itself to just the aesthetics of it can be so dramatically different, which I think is is a great opportunity available yeah. to to people who are considering an addition change for their RPG. Yeah, and for sure. And also, there's there's of course the other one when uh, the ownership of an RPG changes hands, and you know they want to like create a new edition of it or something like that. That of course influences a lot of the decision making as well. Yeah, whether it's you know just because they want to make it their own or any other number of reasons. The change of a company, the change of the the people behind it can very much fuel a new edition. And a lot of times can be good, sometimes can betray the fan base. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely true. So it's a, it's a very fraught prospect. But overall, I think editions are just a really fascinating thing to see. You know, you track the history of a system and you, you, you see the evolution of it, you know, from its humble beginnings or maybe not so humble beginnings, depending mm-hmm. on, you know, the era in which it was created. But, you know, how does it move through and how does it grow and how does it change is really interesting to watch. So, you know, just just a few random musings 
on the additions of RPGs. Obviously a very free-form discussion. Feel free to contribute. You know, we always love hearing feedback from you all. So, you know, if you've got observations about a particular new edition, old edition, uh, generally about editions, let us know in the comments. You can always message us. Yeah. And we'd love to hear it. Yeah, definitely. Well, there you go. That's a look at some of our thoughts about RPG editions. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Dragon's Demise. We hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to join us this Wednesday for our weekly stream. Also, Washington tickets still on sale. You've got a little bit over a week to get them before the price goes up in June, so do not hesitate. It's going to be fantastic. It's in the same place September 8th and 9th at the Georgetown University Hotel and Convention Center, I believe is the official name of it. So definitely head on over to WashingtonCon.com, pick those up. It's going to be a blast. We're going to be there. All the people are going to be there. It's great. It's going to be huge. And finally, tune in next week when we review Azul.